Welcome back to the King Belly Podcast, where every opinion is welcome and every voice can be heard. A couple of things before we get into today's interview, a couple of things I want to get into. Uh, first things first, um, I just finished watching, not too long ago, just finished watching the Duke-Michigan State game. What a game, what a finish. Unfortunately, Duke lost, but hey, at least Zion Williamson will be able to rest up and start preparing for the Garden. <laughs> at least he'll be preparing for the Knicks to select him number one overall on draft night. I really hope that happens. I really do hope that happens. And I have a gut feeling. I have a gut feeling that this year we will finally be able to get that highly coveted number one pick and restart our franchise correctly. I really hope so. Um, Just watching Zion in the NCAA tournament this year, I can't believe y'all really thought he should sit down. I mean... Granted, there's no one skill that he has mastered as yet. But one thing's for sure, one thing's for certain. That kid loves the game of basketball. And he loves to compete. And that was on display throughout the entire NCAA tournament on both ends of the floor from Zion Williamson. Competing at a very high level, both on offense and on defense. So, I really do look forward to seeing who will get the number one pick because I really want to see the kid at the next level. <sighs> on a sadder note, I want to send my condolences to the family of Nipsey Hussle. That shit is crazy, man. That shit is crazy. It's like no matter how good you could do for your community, there's still people out there who aren't appreciated. Who aren't appreciative Who hate Who harbor envy And jealousy in their hearts towards you No real details have come out on um on, on shooting And Of course I'm not really sure why it happened But one can only assume that You know it's a bunch of niggas in the hood Watching facing And hating on his progress And hating on his growth I mean This guy had a hell of a year last year man Finally getting the recognition finally getting the support that he deserves and for him to go out like this is just nasty son it's ridiculous I'm speechless man like, this shit hurt like I actually knew Nip like you know just watching interviews and seeing the work that he does in his community you can tell that he's really a genuine soul like he's somebody who really cares about the causes that he puts his name, that he attaches his name to. Somebody who really cares about the people in his corner and just and to see him taken out in cold blood in front of his own clothing store, man, that's nasty. So my heart, my condolences definitely does go out to the family of Nipsey Hussle. Let's have a quick moment of silence, man. Today's guest, on the right note, today's guest on the podcast is Corey Cambridge. Corey Cambridge is a podcaster, a musician. He's currently the host of two separate podcasts, the Other People's Podcast and the Silent Giants Podcast. You can find both of those podcasts now streaming on Spotify. And uh, it's a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I spoke to Corey and we had a nice conversation about his journey growing up in Richmond, Virginia and finding his way to New York City to pursue a career in podcasting. And we spoke about the things that influenced 
not only his podcast career but his music career and um a couple of other things but of course you know i don't want to spoil it for you but i hope you guys do enjoy the episode here's the conversation it's Corey. what's up man? i know man what's going on bro I can't really complain. Actually, let me get close to the mic because it is a little echo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you I, know. I want to start back as far as far as possible. I know we were talking a little bit before, and I want to start back as far as early as possible. So where did Corey Cambridge originally grow up? Dude, man, um, Richmond, Virginia. Born and raised. Virginia, very. Which was part of Virginia. Uh, Richmond, Richmond. Richmond. At least said we're from Virginia. I'm, oh, my bad. My bad. My bad. I hear that. My bad. So Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia, man. So it's kind of boring. I was there from birth. <laughs> Until I moved to New York, so I've only lived two lives. So, so growing up in Richmond, you said it was boring. I can imagine it wasn't the city that New York is, where it's it's it's, it's constant hustle and bustle. People are always awake. Somebody's always on the train. Somebody's always doing something. Somebody's always chasing something. Richmond is the opposite of that, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, Richmond is a city, and I mean, um, there's enough there, mind you. I also want to say that the Richmond that I'm speaking of is pre uh, when I was growing up there. You know, mm-hmm. now. I go to Richmond, I don't even know where I'm at anymore. You know, it looks so different. Uh, a lot of people have moved there from other places. It's become a very desirable place to live for other people from around the country. So, um, but when, growing up in Richmond from the time I was there, mm-hmm. um, it was just very calm and relaxed, man. Virginia is just a great state to be from. It's a lot of diversity. They always say it's the second greatest state in America. Right. And it's right before the South. It's funny you said a lot of diversity. I was going to ask you what the diversity was like being there. It's right next to the South. Like you you travel over, and next thing you know, you're in South Carolina, you're in North of South Carolina, and the, the um, diversity and the race relations are a lot different. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it, there's diversity, not just in race, but there's diversity in, uh, you know, geography. Mm-hmm. I think geography is a big, is an important factor, and, like, the, the uh, geography can help shape the culture, mm-hmm. right? Like, if the geography of Colorado is the Rockies, then the culture of Colorado is going to be Surrounded by skiing and right. like outdoorsy type shit, you so, know. So, what's the geography like in the part of Richmond that you grew up, or the part of Richmond that you were always in? Uh, Richmond was is in the central part of the state. So, in the central part of the state, uh, just kind of very woodsy, mm-hmm. like lots of trees and stuff like that. But then if you get to, you know, east of Richmond, you get Tidewater area. You know what I mean? Then you get to like north of Richmond, you get DC area. Mm-hmm. Then you get to the west of Richmond, you got the Blue Ridge Mountains. And you get Blue Ridge Mountains. Never heard of that. Oh man, Blue Ridge Mountains are—they're beautiful. So, so between the woods and the mountains, when you were younger, which one would you fancy over more? Were you more of a camper or were you more of a, a rock climbing mountain guy? I ain't, I ain't no camper. <laughs> that, that, that was never my thing. But I was. Camper is wavy. Camper is wavy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's wavy. I do it now. Right. But growing up, I was definitely more of uh, into fishing, and mm-hmm. my grandfather would take me fishing, and we would go down to the York River. We would go down to Hampton. We were going just fishing trips all around the state, and. That was our thing. We go to the reservoir, and, and every Sunday, like literally the I, best I, memories I've of my life. I've fished about probably twice in my life. Where are you from? I'm from. I'm originally from Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn. Well, I was born in Brooklyn, and I moved to Queens. But I spent the majority of my time in Brooklyn because I was always in school, going to church in Brooklyn, doing everything in Brooklyn. So okay. I'm a little bit of a hybrid between Brooklyn and Queens. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't go fishing in the Hudson. Exactly. That, you know. Exactly. Or the East River for that matter. Right. It's right. Right. Not the place to find fish. Uh, they're there, but. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not the fish that you want to exactly, eat. Exactly, exactly. So, so would you normally bother, would you normally eat the, not eat the, yeah, eat the fish that you kill? Would you normally eat the fish that you kill? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So how, like, that's, that's crazy because I always, I'm always interested in people who grow up outside of New York City or a big city for that matter because the difference between you guys and, and us is the fact that you guys actually are able to, you guys know how to survive. 
Um, Period. Uh, you know I, how to survive in New York, but it's a different type of survival. It's, it's, it's a different type of survival. In nature. Yeah, but I mean, look, nothing that is bad is bad, and nothing that's good is good, right? Like, What do you mean by that? That's interesting. Uh, so let's say, for instance, you guys have a, an advantage over, Native New Yorkers have an advantage over people from outside of the New York mm-hmm. um, that, in terms of opportunity, right? In terms of like- True. You know, the diversity of industry. Like when you go step into another city, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Philadelphia mm-hmm. and um, I'm just kind of cruising through Philly and I'm asking the Uber driver, like, what's the economy here? You know, and you take that for granted when you're from New York City. Right. That every type of economy almost is here. Every you know? type of, like you said, every type of industry, any type of company and every different type of sector is here in New York. Right. And that changes. Because I'm from New York. Right. And so if you're from here, you, you may not see it as that. Mm-hmm. But until you go somewhere else and you realize, oh, man, like the money game is way harder here. Like, if I go have a dinner, if I invite friends over to my house, I got mm-hmm. friends that work in... You know, they work on Wall Street. I got friends who are attorneys. I got friends that work for the NBA. Mm-hmm. I got friends that work uh, in media. I have friends who do music um, on, on, and very successful in their industry. So right. that is not, the diversity is not really there um, in Virginia where I necessarily grew up. So, so what industry was dominant in Virginia where you grew up? Tobacco. Um, tobacco is. Fronto tobacco, Fronto leaf? A lot of Fronto Leaf production in Virginia? No, we have... I don't know what Fronto Leaf is, but we had... Uh, Philip Morris is the main company that, like, produces... It's, it's the tobacco capital of the world, Richmond, Virginia. Really? So I never knew that. Yeah, so all your cigarettes, I would say 70% come from... Oh, that makes sense. That's why anytime I know, like, anytime you talk to an old hair from New York, they'll tell you about, like, people hustling from Virginia. Right. Back and forth from Virginia, buying cigarettes. Right. And selling to the corner store. No, that makes sense. Right, so that's why you can get the Lucy's. When you ever see a pack of Lucy's here in New York, mm-hmm. they're a $4 pack of cigarettes. So they'll have a Virginia tax stamp on the back. Right. Um, people do that to avoid the, the tax, right? Right, to avoid the taxes. So that's the main economy there. So in New York, you are you're, you have access to a lot of privileges, too. Um, I guess the privilege of maybe being from down south would be, um, you know, space. You know? Facts. Space, like, it's more of a slower pace. Um, you're not really rushing into anything. <laughs> you're just taking your time and just going with the motion, so to speak. Well, sure, but maybe just, you know, if I have a four-year-old who was raised in New York City, mm-hmm. if I have a child, that child's going to see a lot more in, their, in just riding the train with me, taking them to school, right. than a 20-year-old who lives from Virginia. That four-year-old's seen more. They've seen poverty. They've seen homeless people. They've seen... Drug addicts. They've seen just a lot more a stuff. Lot, a lot of different things, right? That four years kind of almost numb to life from a very early age, or just conditioned. Right. So you know, I would say that at twenty years old, I didn't see what a four year old saw. You know, it's crazy. Um, but Virginia is cool. Definitely a lot of great culture, um, and some none of it. Some of it not positive. Some of it very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was cool. It really allowed me to grow up at my own pace and do right, things at my you own pace. Weren't, you weren't rushing. You weren't rushing. You kind of, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a lot more space. A lot Because in New York, we're, we're living on top of each other. Right. Even in the areas where you have a lot of space for like your house, you're still living on top of each other. Totally, 100%. Compared to like down south when you go to Alabama and Georgia and see the type of space or the amount of land these people are sitting on in their homes. So, like, being that you guys are not living on top of each other, there's not so, so much of a competition with so many people in the city, 
it's much easier for you to develop and, and grow as a person. Right, 100%. 100%. Um, I think that has a big part to do with the human mind, right? What sense? You know, I think that living in New York City, especially when this is the number one vantage point of perspective of life that you know, mm-hmm. um, can cause maybe some type of like post-traumatic stress disorder, you know? A little bit of, like the other day, I'm in bed, literally, as I'm falling asleep, I hear two people fighting <laughs> on my street, and someone gets stabbed. Wow. Right? Right there. You know, it's, that's a very common story for, for somebody, anybody living in the inner city. Right. And I mean, for 95% of people mm-hmm. in the country, they're not experiencing that as any type of reality for them. Um having to go to bed to, to gunshots and sirens outside. Right. And I mean, I think those type of things, like you're, the, the notion that you wake up in the morning and you're fighting for a seat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're, you're fighting. Think about the little small things. Just to get to work. Just to get to work. You're fighting for a seat on the train. You're bumping somebody out of the way to get a cup of coffee because you have to catch the train on time. There's a notion that there's competition from the minute you walk out the door. Right. And it's something you don't have to do in any other place really in the country. It's very unique to just New York. Um, and so, oh, and, and once again, not everything that is bad, bad, and everything that's good is good. It's all about what you're willing to tolerate. Right, it's all about being able to adjust. So let me ask you a question. Growing up in Virginia, how did you find your creative outlet as a teen? If you're in a city that doesn't have a lot of people, a lot of things to inspire you, how did you find a creative outlet to be inspired? You know what's funny, man? Creative outlets just kind of found me. Like, I always loved music. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the thing that I, I just remember just genuinely loving music. Who, who were some of your favorite rappers growing up or, or artists in general? You know, uh, I was the first person that made me fall in love with music was Michael Jackson. And I mean, I, and I heard his music in a different way than I think other people took to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I really was interested in, like, oh my God, like the intricacies of the rhythms and the lyrics and the melodies and mm-hmm. who wrote this and. Uh, I would literally just sit down and entertain myself for hours at my grandmother's house. I would just, she had Michael Jackson on vinyl. Right. And I would just play those oh, albums man. over and over and over and over and over again by myself and dance and study the moves. And, and, and around what age was this? I'd say eight. Around eight. Seven, eight years old. So uh, you started, you got, you found, you, you got, you fell in love with Michael Jackson around seven, eight years old. At what point did you now say, okay, I want to try music for myself? I would say like, because I liked Michael Jackson, and that was my first introduction into music, as mm. as far as for everyone. And, and you almost feel guilty even saying it because he's such like a institution of music that it's like, oh, really, dude? Like everyone loves Michael Jackson. Right. It's, it's low hanging fruit. Right, very low hanging fruit. But um, I would say I had my uncle. My uncle Dre was my youngest uncle, and he put me on a hip hop. And who was some of the first artists he put you on to? Oh man, you know what? The, I remember the first the first. CD I ever bought, the first artist he ever put me on, put me on was Heavy D. Heavy D. And I just Can't loved Heavy D. Heavy D. Yes. <laughs> and I loved Heavy D. I bought the Water Better Head album. Mm-hmm. That was the first album I ever bought. And I studied that album. And I really enjoyed, at that point, I knew I liked making music. And I would just make rhythms, make lyrics over the melody that the rappers were already set. Mm. So if the cadence was already there... You just fill it in with your own words. With my own words. And that's how it really started, like how I started developing and writing songs. And then I would spend time in my room 
at this point now, I was really into Jay. Like, Jay was always my... Uh, interesting, Jay, because it's, it's funny because you talk to a lot of down south guys, and they'll tell you, well, even though Virginia is still the north, but yeah. a lot of people who outside of New York, they'll tell you that early on, they weren't really, they weren't really feeling Jay. My Uncle Dre, man. I mean, I think for everybody, it's about that big brother or that friend who puts you on or something. and mm-hmm. They'll tell you, like, yo, I understand everybody else in the city not rocking with this. Right. This is the way to go. Right. And I mean, when it came to music, Uncle Dre was like my my guy. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, yo, like, yo, listen to this. And I'm eight years old, nine years old. <laughs> like, yo, listen to this Jigaverse, man. And to this day, when we get on the phone, all we do is rap like Jay lyrics. <laughs> like he might leave me a voicemail, or just rapping something like off lobsters and shrimp. Right. Like, and um, so you know. But I think with Jay, I really admired his wordplay and how clever he was, but also his the way he put together songs, mm-hmm. um, and his and and still storytelling at the same time. And at eight or nine years old, that was kind of like the bar. Like that's what I want to do. Um, it's kind of just be like Jack. That was that was really it. What albums? Are, uh, what um? What what Jay Z albums would you listen to? Around oh time? man! That, so you know that what? Like Reasonable Doubt days. See, or? I didn't even get to Reasonable Doubt because in all in all honesty, too, at ten, nine, ten years old, like that was over my head. You know, to listen to a Reasonable Doubt album. So by the time still, I got to Jay, you still listen to mixtape Jay? No, no, I was by the time the first Jay album I ever bought was uh, Volume Two. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Hard volume hard. Two, and that that had a man. I, Every song to this day, one of my favorite songs by Jay is "If I Should Die," off right. that album. Yeah, that's like what track three, I think, like or something like that. That album really, really aged well. I'm not gonna lie. It did. That it album did really age well. It, it went because of the commercial aspect of that album. Right, the, it the didn't Andy, get the any sample. Right. That's it didn't get did the it. critical acclaim. Mm-hmm. But when you look back, like play it right now, you'd be like, "Yo, this joint goes." Like, th- nah, the album still slaps. I must say. And it's funny because on the next album, Volume Three, I think gonna come and get me. He was like. I remember a year ago, I almost lost this job because people weren't really, they weren't really, really feeling the album when it first came out. Right. So they was questioning whether or not they, like, was, was Jay really worthy of the of the status that we were given him? And then, like I said, now the album actually turned out to age pretty well. Oh, to me, it's one of his most underappreciated albums. Under. You know what's crazy? I think I think Volume 1 is one of his more underappreciated albums. I don't, I don't hear many people talking about it in my lifetime. Yeah, but there was that, that's, that's still that's a top five. That's a, well, at least one of my top five favorite Jay albums. I would say top five. But when I listen to favorites. Volume One, I, I feel like I hear an artist who's just trying to find himself. I could see that because it's a lot of different it's a lot of different vibes on that album. Like, right, you, you can see him trying out the little bad boy Diddy Bob a little bit, but also still sticking to the gangster hold that brought him in but, a reasonable doubt. But, but that's too like I think that's too much of a two different brand dynamics, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Being where he was at, those two, you, you can't jump from being like a like a classic classic album to all of a sudden being jiggy. And I felt he hit he hit volume two in the perfect stride of I'm jiggy, but I'm still storytelling. You know what I mean? Like even though right. I'm hitting some commercial with Hard Knock Life, like I'm still giving you something that has a story with it. Right, Hard, Hard Knock Life was probably the only commercial record on that on that album. No, he uh, Money Cash O's. Oh, true, true, true. Money Cash and a lot of people say, um, well, the original no. was a radio hit. Wait, can I get it? When I say commercial, like those are radio hits, but I wouldn't say commercial. You know, when I say commercial, I mean like when he was in the studio, he made he put together that Andy record, um, what Hard Not Life. He put together Hard Not right. Life and pretty much said, "Yo, this is the song that's gonna get everybody's attention." You know right, what I mean? Right, like, right. 
can I get a money cash hose? You know for a fact those those are gonna get spins on the radio, but that that hard knock life song in general, that was gonna reach everybody. Whereas can I get a and money cash hose probably would only reach us. But look, you forget the can, the can I get a was on the um um rush hour soundtrack. True, true, true. So that see, was a see I'm young, so these things elude me from time to time. Oh, how old are you? Twenty two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so these, these I, I forget about. Even though I watched, Rush right, Hour, right, right. I was young when I was watching. Rush yeah, Hour, and, so I and, probably didn't even realize at that. that moment in that time. Mm-hmm. At that moment in that time that period, was a very big, big movie. Can I get a was a mega hit, and you got to think about this too. That was the song that really launched Ja, ja Rule. True. That like really launched Ja until Fifty found him. That, that was years later. <laughs> that was years later. Ja had to me. Ja is one of the greatest rap songwriters of all time. Right, he doesn't get his credit because Fifty's constantly clowning and people forget what yeah, job brought to him. Take away the 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 I don't know the ridiculousness of the situation mm. when you strip away and just listen to the music. Ja rules the Lionel Richie of rap. The Lionel Richie of rap. One hundred percent. He is the greatest rap songwriter as far as melody, as far as making duets. Like he's making those beautiful. He wrote all those lyrics. He did. Like. He's doing the male and the female part and painting some very vivid pictures, telling some nice stories. I'm really thinking about it like, I don't, but you, who, who in hip hop makes, and not, not only that, I look at not only what you do as an artist, but how does that influence the art around you at that time? All 50 Cent is the same thing. Obviously, you have Nelly Kelly Dilemma. Mm-hmm. You have so many people also taking his blueprint, taking, taking elements from his, right? From right. His and style and, and you know what? And you don't get. Even taking it to modern day, you don't get these Jay, I'm sorry, these Drake and Rihanna collaborations that we're getting without Ja Ja was doing it first. Ashanti, right? You know, so uh, you know he may not get the the credit for being you know the top rapper ever, but as far as a songwriter perspective, he's Mm. he's way bigger than rapper. He's a songwriter, and a songwriter to me is you can give that song to any other person and they can flex and they can sing it. Right. So you can make. any of those songs, a country song. <laughs> really? Yo, 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 I never. I, it's funny because even when you said that, I was still thinking about another artist in the same genre. I never thought about it like that. Like, if you're a really good songwriter, any artist in any genre should be able to take those lyrics. Right. So it's it's not a it's not a rap thing. It's a songwriter thing. Mm-hmm. And Jaw is amazing at that. So, so growing up, which part of music? Well, by the, around the time we started making music, which part of the process did you enjoy the most? Was it most of the songwriting or the production? You know, definitely, I n- never liked production. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked the idea of saying to be, of being in the room of being like, "Yo, that's hot. Let's add this. Yo, let's, let's, I heard this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I heard this little piano part. Let's loop that." But I'm not the person to sit down and like play it or, or piece it together. Nah, man, that's just not my. <laughs> that's just not. I don't have fun doing that. <laughs> I like, feel you. I like to be in, you say the same thing previously about um podcast engineering and, and, and producing the editing. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> like like I'll do it with you. Right. I'll do it with a partner and I can I can show up with the meat and potatoes of what the song is. Mm-hmm. Like I have this part looped up, the song's done, can be built around this loop. Mm-hmm. And I like being there for that. But I don't want to be the person pressing the buttons and all that. So who were some of the guys and, um, and, and people that you were like rapping with and, and producing with around that time? Or who, who produced for you around that time? Uh, dude, when I, I've only, uh, well, with other producers, obviously, but mm-hmm. um, the guy who really showed me a lot musically is this guy named Oblev. Um, he's a producer out of Richmond. And, dude, he's fucking incredible. I mean, he's, to me, 
you know, I don't want anyone coming from my head, but he's one of the, like, there's a certain level of talent mm-hmm. where you just can't get any better. <laughs> right? Like, now I know what you mean, because you, you kind of even look like you're kind of struggling to fathom the type of producer he is, even as you're saying it. Right. You just get better differently. Right. But you hit, once you hit a certain skill set of your craft, you're just competing against yourself. As a producer, he's that. Like, Obliv is one of the most brilliant, he's on a Dilla level. Of production, he's on a Dilla level of um, understanding music mm-hmm. and the matter, the genre, cutting it up, the the feel of the beats, the swing of the beats, the swing of the drums. Um, he's amazing. So I, me and him started a rap group together, mm-hmm. and he was doing the production. And I would say we, me, T. Row, always on rhymes. And as a rapper, he was incredible. Um, but that's what, that was my first taste of music was working with him, mm-hmm. and it was beautiful. I was eighteen years old, and so how, how did you guys link up? How did you guys meet? You know what? I had a, I, had a, I was working at a restaurant at Roots Chris Steakhouse in Richmond. I was a busboy. They had a piano guy mm-hmm. who was playing music during what playing a lot of music. Ruth Chris, and we would hang out. I would talk to him like, "Yo, what's up, dude? You want playing me something like this record? Some like Elton John shit or some like whatever shit?" Mm-hmm. He's like, "Yeah, yeah." But mind you, I'm 16, 17 years old. So he's like, yo, how do you... He's maybe 25 or 28. A couple years older. Right. Like, he's definitely a man. Mm-hmm. And I'm a junior in high school or something like that. And he was like, yo, how do you know how to make... Uh, how do you know all these different records? Because you're, like, black dude and you're 16 one Elton John records or right. whatever. And I was like, oh, man, I love that Elton John album. Or whatever. And from there, he was like, I have a friend you should meet. Come over to my crib. All right. And then... I go over to his crib and this guy that he went to high school with, and then we got cool. Um, that's Obliv. Obliv. And then, man, the first time we met, we just started like freestyling. And I think we freestyled for maybe, man, I mean, it, it felt like hours. It may have been, <laughs> it may have been just one straight hour of freestyling back mm-hmm. and forth, and just like one person not letting the other person outdo. Outdo them. Right, like. So this is this is Obleb, the producer, also freestyling. Yeah. Okay. And he's amazing. He's nice. Mm-hmm. And we go back and forth, and it was uh, when we got finished. I think it was that like mutual respect of like, oh, bro, are you nice? Right. So so after that first meeting, that's when I was like, all right, I'm, I definitely want to work with this guy going forward because you guys both recognize and appreciate each other's talent. Yeah, and it wasn't even like a thing of we were gonna make a band or a group or anything like that. It wasn't even. Like that, I was like, "Yo, let's just come over to my crib." Like, I think our days were Tuesday. Like, mm-hmm. come over to my crib on Tuesday. All right, and that's really how it started. And Obliv taught me a lot about not just, um, you know, in the moment you'll say he's just teaching you about music. But he really taught me a lot about life mm. in those sessions. So he was kind of like a big brother to you. So to, to this day, to this day, I think you have you always have to have some person in your life that you always want to impress. Mm-hmm. That is true. And I think Obliv is that person that I always want to impress, um, for sure. Because he taught cousin, me... A brother, a brother, a friend, but that's always those, those, those older people where you're like, nah, if I could do this and impress him, and I'll be as cool as him. Right. And also people that, like, you know, he has amazing taste. Mm-hmm. So I know that I wouldn't want to do something that, ah, he wouldn't fuck with that. I probably wouldn't touch that right you know what i mean he's he's like my gauge mm-hmm. so he, he influenced a lot of your style a lot of your tastes as, as, as an artist yeah he, he taught me how to rap on stage he taught me about making a song mm-hmm. he taught me because i think when you're an early songwriter especially in that era it was about like 
at that time, jewels and bitches and whatever, you know, like, that was the language and the jargon that was used at the time. Right. And he was like, no, nah, that's not, that, that, that's corny, bro. That's not your life. You don't got to do that, right? You could just be you. Right. And I was like, oh, well, all right. So I started rapping about things that were true to me mm-hmm. at, at that time. Or you, you watch the, uh, I think it's the Art of the art of Rap or something like that with KRS-One. I think that's the name of the documentary, but it teaches you the, or the Art of 16 Bars. Something like that. Right. But it was a KRS-One. Oh, uh, he's a, a legendary rapper. Yeah, educated guy. I know K R S one. Very educated dude. Yes. Right. For any rapper, you should watch his uh documentary because it teaches you about being a rapper and being mm-hmm. on stage and being having an a stage presence and being an MC. Right. And Oblip sat me down and just like schooled me to all that. Like it was just like rap boot camp. <laughs> like so. So what was it, what was it like the first time you actually on was able to, uh, to go on stage and perform and, and try the things that Oblip taught you? It was the best one, best moments of my life, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, Where was it at? It was at a place called the Canal Club. I was in college at this point now, and we already had had these songs that were like really generating a lot of buzz in locally area, in right? our hometown. Like people were obsessed with them. It was like. It was mind blowing the response we were getting. Mm-hmm. So I went to college and I came back and I was like, "Yo, we have to do a show." So I booked a show for Christmas Eve because that's when uh, everybody's back home from school. back home from school. Right. right, right, right. So I booked this show. It was a free show, and I guess they didn't want to. They didn't want to give that date away because who wants that that time slot? Really, Christmas the day Eve. after Christmas? Right. No one's trying to go to a show after, you know. Trying to spend time with your family. Right. So they were like, oh, just take it for free. So we had the, the, the show, and, man, we probably had 400 people show 400. up. And we had burned all these CDs, me and my friends. We had burned, like, our little mixtape. Mm-hmm. We probably had, like, 500, and we sold all of them for $5 a piece. Wow. So at the end, we had thousands of dollars. Like, <laughs> and for a college kid, that's a lot. Oh my God! For a free show, right. doing what you love to do, and it was amazing, man. I think those moments in life definitely, definitely changed me. It's 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 interesting because I just thought of something, and it's like, even though it's much easier to access um, content, even though it's much easier to access music, it's not as easy to sell it because everybody can get it for free. And even though you were you were um you were trying to be a rapper in a time. Where Prior to the digital era, prior to the digital age, right, 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 you were still able to make thousands of dollars in one night because you had the physical copy ready to give to them. Right, 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 right. Okay, even like even though even a, a, a artist now can sell out an arena, but it may be hard for you to sell your actual records because of streaming and things like things of that nature. You just find the music for free. Yeah, I mean, the only way that you maybe could do that now is to say, okay, we're gonna press up vinyl and then autograph it. Right. And say and specifically a vinyl, even even though even though yes, CD was just a generation prior, I feel like the more antique it is, the more like prestige it has, and the more somebody actually wants to buy it as a collector's item. Right. Like that. Right. So maybe you could sell it for merchandising from that standpoint. Um, but yeah, that was that was the way, man. And I was hooked. I was hooked. And me and Oblivion, we started a band from that point, mm-hmm. and it was a pop acoustic band, and we did a lot of great things in college with that, and. Got to open up for a lot of people, mm-hmm. and um, we were doing really well with this guy named Brad Doggett I was cool with in high school, and Oblib went to go do his producing thing. Mm-hmm. He was way more into the producing at that point, the more than being in like the pop band. Right. And um, so I just started doing that with my other friend, Brad Doggett, and we had a good YouTube following, and we were opening up for people in college, and 
uh, all that. I did that for three years or so. This is all while you're in college. Yeah. And what school were you going to at the time? Uh, VCU. VCU. Virginia Commonwealth. Right. I'm familiar with VCU. And um, from there, once the band broke up, is when I decided to make the move, like to New York. To New York. So you had just graduated from VCU, and you decided to make the move to New York. Uh, well, I didn't graduate from VCU. I went to VCU for only a couple of semesters. Mm-hmm. At that point, the band was doing so well uh, on online on YouTube mm-hmm. that it was like, okay, well, why would I go back to school? Right, and and I don't I don't really blame, I don't blame you for that because it's, even now I always say this it's like I don't even know if I should have did college. I don't recommend people to go to college. I don't. Now, mind you. Sure, I wouldn't have discovered my bandmates, and maybe that journey wouldn't have led me to New York, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that as, especially as black people, mm-hmm. nah. Why, why specifically as black people? Because I think that the most, I, I can say this, I've never had a job where I had a white boss where I ever felt like I was treated fairly. Mm. And I think that as black people, you know, one thing that we have to do, I don't want to sound like Cosby or some shit. Like, one thing <laughs> as, as black people, <laughs> one thing we have to do. Not talking shit. But I think one thing that would help our situation, that right. sounds, that's more of what our tone I want to have with it, is that, um, and you see it, it's just nothing new. So you see the, with entrepreneurship with Jay and we're preaching entrepreneurship more and more in our community. Right. And ownership. But, and and ownership, things. exactly. That it's more important to have a skill. It's more important to have something that you have that, like, is a hard thing, like a tangible thing. Mm-hmm. Building your own personal brand. Like, why put your hands at the mercy of, you know, working for someone else? Mm-hmm. When we can only see, we've only seen throughout our history, we're not going to be treated fairly. Well, we've only seen how far that can, that can take us. So what about the people who aren't necessarily creative and they feel like the only way that I could be successful is if I pursue a degree and then go on to be a professional of some sort? Well, look, there's coding. <laughs> you can build websites. You can build computers. Mm-hmm. You can be an IT person. You can teach yourself those things literally on YouTube. Um and being creative doesn't mean I'm artistic, right? Like I, like, I paint pictures or I make music. Like, you're creative. What you're doing right now is being creative. Anything mm-hmm. that you put, you have in your mind of an idea that you implement is creative. It's creative, right. And so, you know, we can broaden horizons of what creativity means, too. But I think that it's being innovative, you know. And, I, you know, I just don't want to be in that position for now I wouldn't mind working for someone else right if I was like heavily learning I'm not saying that either like I would if, if you're learning from if, someone if you enjoy what you do right and you're learning right like not just enjoying what you're doing being stagnant you have to be and constant not, not just busy work not just busy work right like you're learning something that could help propel you to be a better art supporter in the future that's cool but I just don't think that college is the answer I think that entrepreneurship is the answer. I think college can maybe teach you so long. You have these two practices, right? Think of who our black leaders are. You have Malcolm X and you have Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And you have Dr. King who, to afford, think about this. If you have to tell a story to someone, right. the story of Dr. King's narrative sounds nicer to a four-year-old 
right? To, right, to a four year. I'm about to say because I, but to a four to year a old. To a four year old, right? So when you're teaching history, they're teaching history to from you at an early age to four and five year olds. Mm-hmm. They don't get to the Malcolm X teaching. You have to get to on your own because it doesn't sound nice. It's for not it. as clean cut as as the Dr. King. Well, who's the person yeah. writing the history book? And it, which brings up an interesting point because it's like. I think well, I think what you're saying speaks to, speaks to a bigger conversation, and I say that because of this, what it sounds like is they're saying instead of going to their institutions and learning from them, it'd be better off if we learn from each other. No, not, not even necessarily that. It's not even that. It's just realizing that, and this is not even like a anti-white, no, no, pro-black no, thing, right? Not. It's a a dialogue. This is a human nature thing. Mm-hmm. It's a person's human nature to tell a kinder side of a bad story. That you were guilty of, right? Especially if you were guilty of it. Especially when you were guilty of it. So when you want to make tomorrow a better day, you're going to reach into your Martin Luther King card because it sounds <laughs> so much better. He wants us all to be equal. Mm-hmm. and right. But what that also does, the teachings of Martin Luther King, though they are absolutely amazing, they do tend to keep you on the nipple of white America longer than you should. right? So let's say, for instance, why work t- this whole working together thing is this whole kumbaya, let's all... It's almost, a, it's almost a fallacy. Right. Versus what Malcolm X was preaching, which was, own your own business. Black entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Own our own community. Yeah. Harlem. You we should own did? Harlem. You know what they did? And they, and they actually, ironically, they're doing it. They did it now with the, with the, um, with the, with the, uh, the Colin Kaepernick um, NFL protest. But mm-hmm. what they did was they found a way to take Malcolm X's message and, and weaponize it. They turned it into an anti-white message opposed to a black empowerment message right. and that's how they were able to weaponize and, um, the message and speaking of narrative if you ask the average white person hey not white person even black people even people in people, general yeah just people in general people in general if you say hey Martin Luther King describe him in three words and then you say Malcolm X describe him in three words you get two completely set of words anti-white white hate Right, like all these, this narrative about mm-hmm. him that is, I'm like, dude, you don't understand people were bombing his house, right? People like, were attacking him. Right, people were attacking he, him. He had constant attacks on his life. Right. So the, these narratives that we drive are um, super important. But I think that for our generation, black entrepreneurship is more important than ever, and especially when it comes to being treated fairly. People in the business world only understand green. Right. When you fuck up a person's money, they would not care what Colin, Copper, what Colin Kaepernick was doing if until he wasn't really fucking up the, the money. money. That's a fact. It's a fact. the money. People only understand... Green. Well, you don't understand culture, but you don't understand the human-to-human, heart-to-heart connection. Mm. <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. It's money. Right. And data. And, you know, and so when you go into business meetings, you know, that's what business meetings are about. Like if you're if this is Motown, think about at the music industry. Mm-hmm. If this is Motown Records, Motown Records, you would go into a room, they would play their records, and ten people would go, "Do you like this or not?" And that vote, was they'll vote on it, and then if if they don't like it, they don't like it. If they like it, they like it. Right. And they bought the jerky right after because they bought the zoe in some way, shape, or form. Right. So then you have, but that's a a, a culture. These people who understand culture. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to go into that same label, let's say a label today. And that same label that was owned by like 
a, a, a white person on mm-hmm. the label. So uh, where's this record being played at? You know, show me the numbers. Where did they stop playing the record? Oh, what's the demographic on this record? It, it's not about the music or where the music goes. It's just the right, numbers. They, they don't have the, the, the same musical t- taste as we do. Right. T- or and they don't understand, like you said, they don't understand the culture. They, they, they didn't grow up in that culture. So right, they didn't grow up in that culture. They can't culture. rely on their heirs to make the decision for them. Exactly. Right, that's why the numbers. Exactly. And so we have to get back to owning our own um, situation. And so I, I, encourage, I encourage college, for if you want to be a doctor, of course. Doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, lawyer accountant, engineer. Even if you honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm recently taking accounting off my list because I feel like you can learn account. Like if you're very good with numbers in high school, I feel like you can learn accounting on your own and go work for a small business. Now, certain things when it comes to my life and when it comes to my money, mm-hmm. I want you to have all the certifications. My life, my health, and my money. Yes, need to have every certification possible. But anything else other than that, <laughs> nah, man, nah. There's there's YouTube, there's Google for that. Right, and, and it's funny because on the, on the, on the same tip of um of changing the narrative, I think changing the narrative starts with telling people or starts with empowering people who don't who aren't quote unquote book smart, like the, the kids who are always good with their hands or the kids who who went on to be tradesmen. They were never encouraged in school. They were always outcast and cast away because they weren't as book smart as everybody else. So I think changing the narrative starts from a very, very young age. It starts from us understanding that there's more than one way to be successful. Everybody is so different. Everybody is so unique. So you can't expect expect everybody to have this cookie-cutter version of success. And also, too, I think that one reason why these ideals are happening even more and on a faster uh, progression is because of the internet. Right. You know, back in the day, another, another reason why maybe I don't trust college as much is who's giving me the lesson? Who's giving me the are lesson? Industry professionals? No, it's not even about industry professionals. It's not even about like, are you, it's not even an X's and O qualified thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, who who wrote this book? I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like, I see, I see where you're going. Is this really allowing me the opportunity to really think freely when you know what the best tool is to learn? The internet. Or just trial and error experience. Experience. The, 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 you, could, you, could, you could make the same argument about the internet, though. You can you could say who wrote this, um, the, the content that I'm consuming, who, who came up with these ideas, where yeah. they get their information from. Right, but at least the internet is an open ocean of information. Mm-hmm. A book is a creek of information, right? right? It's just a creek. You can't dig any deeper than like the book that person gave you at that particular moment that you're reading. You could. You could. to the ocean, a.k.a. the internet. You could just fact check it. Right. But the fact of like, yo, I want to, how do I use this computer software? How do I start a coffee shop? How do I do anything in life that you want to do is literally on the internet. That was the thing that would keep us divided from our dreams. Mm -hmm. Right? Was information. It was access. So the internet really helps with that access. I mean, you don't even have to leave your neighborhood in Brooklyn to Google what's life like in Shanghai. Right. And see it. Go on Instagram and hashtag Shanghai. And see it for yourself. And see it for yourself. It's crazy, too, because I feel like, especially with people around my age, being that we have access to so much information... It's kind of it comes it kind of comes to our detriment because we don't use utilize that access because it's so it's so free it's always there, 
maybe if we didn't have it, we'd be more proactive and we'll be we'll be more hungry for, to look for these things. But I feel like being that we have such easy access to information, we don't go searching for it as much. Right. I, mean, I think, and as a whole of the human race, we want to be spoon fed, right? Like, do you want to go out right now and go hunting? You want to go kill a cow? <laughs> no, nah, you just want to go, go get a go steak. Across the street, exactly, and get a steak. You know, and I think we look at information and opportunity the same exact way. Mm-hmm. But the information is all there. I mean, there's never been an opportunity in the actual human history for the the history of our people in America Period. to where we can get the information to anything that we need. As a matter of fact, we don't even know how long this access is going to last. Explain that. Because I'm, I'm saying, what I'm saying is, to your point, this is, the, this is the most free amount of access that we've ever had. This is the most freely accessible information that we've ever had. We don't know if in the future they'll probably limit our access. I mean, I'm sure our, our, our access, our be, access is being limited now. That is something that is happening, right? Like, um, even if it's looking at, like, the algorithms. When you make a post on Instagram, certain things come up. You know, some people do see it. Some people don't see it. Um, you know, and now we have a problem where there's so much information that people don't know what is true information. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. That, and now the fake news scare is something that's been confusing people a lot, too. Right. I mean... Because you could just you could just cry out fake news for everything and then get people confused and then they don't know where to go from there. Look, I, I've, been, I've been mind-fucked this entire week. <laughs> this week was a really interesting week as far as, you know... Think of these stories. Mm-hmm, let's hear it. You got... R. Kelly. Right. His interview with Gail King. Gail King. You got Jesse Smollett. Mm-hmm. Was it, was it how many charges? 10, 16, 16, 16, 16 charges. 16 crazy. 16 charges. And then you have Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And the Michael Jackson doc. All these things are kind of transpiring all this week. All at the same time. All at the same time, right? Now, look at the Michael Jackson situation. Mm-hmm. And not, not even going to... You know, I don't know if this what their truth or what they're telling us is. I kind of that's their story, their story, right? And I can't ever look at a victim or someone who said this has happened to me and say you're lying because right. I wasn't it's there. Not, it's not our place to do that. Right, it's not our place to do that. I wasn't there. Only you, Mike, and God knows, right? Facts. But I can say this: the the way that in terms of Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big Michael Jackson fan, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Right. And this goes back into the conversation about information mm-hmm. and what is truth and where are we going as a media, as a truthful society. Back in the day, if you were going to tell a story and you were going to print that story, that story had to be real, right? Like, I mean, they had, that shit had to be fact-checked. Mm-hmm. People had journalistic integrity back in the day. Journalistic, journalistic integrity. Right? Like this, you didn't print or create a story that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't print stories, you printed truth. And now we're living in this era where you don't know what the truth is. So, look, for example, you have someone like Mike. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Michael had inappropriate relationships with children. Now, the, the extent of those inappropriate relationships, we don't know. We don't know. We're at baseline, but well, he did. He had extremely inappropriate relationships with children. So, that's one. But if you ask Michael, Michael, how many uh, surgeries did you have? He go, oh, uh, I had two. 
Two thirties mm-hmm. on my nose. Michael, you're lying. <laughs> you're lying to me. Right? Now, if you ask R. Kelly, the same thing with Gail King. So, have you ever had sex <laughs> with women under the age of 18? Someone looked at us and told us no. 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 You're lying. <laughs> Just like that. Bro, I saw you, though. <laughs> we literally witnessed you. I witnessed you. And, and you know why you're back in jail? It's because they have tapes <laughs> of you. Newer tapes. That's crazy, which is crazy. The, like... So you're just dilute. You're not going to acknowledge that everyone around you is looking at the truth, and you're telling me something else. We're telling me that you're delusional. You're literally for, trying to force us to believe otherwise. But now we're living in an era. Now I'm gonna go to Jesse Smollett, mm-hmm. where being a victim because truth is not uh, sought after, being a victim is rewarding. Right. So let's Being say a victim is currency to a certain extent. Exactly. So not not in the same vein, but in the same emotional tie. It's like who was the dude from the Cosby Show? The dude from the Cosby Show who was bagging grocery That's trader different. jokes. I forgot, I forgot his name. It was Theo though, not Theo. It was the uh, the um the son-in-law. I forgot his yeah, name. Yeah. So he was working at Trader Joe's, right? Mm-hmm. You get this feeling from him that he's a victim. That, that emotional feeling of like, I want to help him, right? Like, how could this happen that he's at Trader Joe's? <clears throat> it's, this, <clears throat> it's the same emotional reaction to Jesse Smollett. That what he's seeking, if I could play myself as a victim, this could help Jeffrey me in my Rose, career. Yeah. This could help me in my career, mm-hmm. right? Like, that was the whole thing. I can get more money from Fox. I can do all this. I can... he, he was originally upset about the amount of money he was making per episode. Right. So this is the opportunity for him to... Get public sympathy to prolong and help his career. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't that happen for the Michael Jackson case? Like, how can we believe these victims 100% in the culture that we're living in of, oh, well, I have public support now. Public support is currency, you know? So, like, what is, what is the truth in this era? Like, what are we... Like... I think we're living in an era of we don't really want the truth. You just want to be entertained. Well, like they always say, the, the lie is always more entertaining than the truth. And in general, like you said, I, I think people just want to be entertained. Like Even when it comes to serious topics, as soon as soon as soon it hits the internet, people are making jokes about it. So I think people's minds are constantly on entertainment as opposed to you know, finding the truth and, 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 and pushing those things forward. I don't even think... I don't integrity things like things, things like right. that don't come to mind when it comes to like reporting stories and stuff like that people just want to be entertained period right so my issue with like the Michael Jackson situation is like not the not the victims and not Michael this doc is not ethical it's not ethical it's not there's no truth in the entire I thing I haven't even watched the doc it was, it was HBO that put it out right? HBO and it's like oh, I can't believe HBO damn Right, like it's just not. I wouldn't expect that. They, from their story crazy. could be true, mm-hmm. and when Michael's Michael's claims when he was alive could be true. Mm-hmm. But this is not ethical. There's not even though you're watching four hours, I did not get four hours of any truth. And I heard, did they put anybody from Michael Jackson's camp? Or no, they, they didn't share Michael Jackson's perspective at all. Just no the boys. No, and these boys also went out and spoke against the allegations under oath. These guys were. Um, these guys under oath supported Michael both one time. Both of them supported him one time. And then one of them supported him when he got older at the 05 trial. 
So like a story is only as credible as the person who's telling the story. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think the greater sum of why I mentioned that R. Kelly and Justice Smollett and Michael Jackson situation mm-hmm. is that we're losing our ethics and how we're getting information. And because there's some information out there, you know, a lot of people won't know the truth about the, whoever has the largest platform has the truth and they get the right to history. That's always been the case with our history. Whoever had the person, whoever was the publisher of that book that we got in school, our history mm-hmm. books, they had the largest platform of information and they've got to put in there whatever they wanted to put in there. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, we're living in very interesting times and I, I, I wonder where we're going to go. How do you think we get back to a, to a point where everybody is, well, everybody can't, but how do we get back to a point where it's, it's, it's good, it's, it's promoted to be ethical and to, and to stop chasing um, fallacies and, and, and false stories and stuff like that? How do you think that's, how do you think we work towards that? I mean, look, there were one creating, getting to a point where we get to create our own narratives. You know, like we, for a long time, even going back, speaking of narratives, even look at the way of this Me Too movement who are the faces of it right now? It's a lot of white women. Right, but it's Cosby. He's in jail. R. Kelly. R. Kelly. He's about to go to jail. We, we forgot all about Weinstein. And we forgot all about Spacey. Um, Kevin Spacey. Matt Lauer. And Matt Lauer had a had locks, a lock button under that's, his desk that's, that's at the shit. NBC headquarters. Now, this what this is doing. Making Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, and Bill Cosby the face is still perpetuating the narrative of over-sexualizing black men. Mm-hmm. It's still saying... Over-sexualizing black people, period. Right, but in particularly black men. We've mm-hmm. always been demonized uh, in a sexual way, mm-hmm. right? Like throughout the course of American history. And this is just happening in a different way. You know, like now it's it's and, and it's funny because the way that they the way that they paint the information they they make it so believable that you wouldn't even think to refute it or you wouldn't even think or realize that oh all of these guys are black right right exactly not Unless, saying that they didn't do it but it's just the fact that they made the face of the movement when you look at it dude we're only twelve percent of the population <laughs> and look at the like, amount of attention that we we always garner yes we're only twelve percent I mean look there's Steven Tyler. From Aerosmith, mm-hmm. Google him, Google Mick Jagger, Stephen Google, Never heard of that. oh Google heard of their ad, Google their shit. Like look at the 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 superheroes, the American superheroes and rock music, and the, all the things they were doing, and Elvis for God's sake, met Priscilla, Priscilla when she was fourteen years old. Nobody ever talks about. That. No one ever talks about that. So let's. I, I'm not saying that these people. Uh, obviously, I want justice for everybody. I want justice to be equal. Mm-hmm. I'm not excusing anything that black men have done, but you just make an observation. Right. Like, can we make, can justice be equal as well? Can we make justice equal across the board too? Like. And, and, that, and that just goes to show you what, what's valued in this country. Oh, I mean, look, but that goes back to the narrative. That's why we have to, why making content for ourselves is so important. Our history is important. Our mm-hmm. voices are important. You know, do I think that Jay-Z would have touched and made a Michael Jackson doc? No. Hell no. No? And and if he did, would it be fair? More than likely. Would Spike Lee make a fair one? Right. I mean... Going back to my my original point of um, 
educating younger black folk, I think I think we can control all of these narratives and control the way that we perceive each other if we made it a priority to educate the next generation. Like if we made like if we found if we created locations or safe havens or schools where we where we can send our young black children to and educate them from our own perspective, educate them from people that look just like them opposed to having history taught from a from a textbook that's biased or from people who don't really care about them. Now, I mean, look. I think we have to we have to invest in the next generation. That's the only way that things are going to get better going forward. I mean, look, and we have a lot of things that everyone you can learn things from all types of people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went to all white schools for all of high school, definitely. What was that like? Um, I'm grateful for the experience. You know, I was talking to my grandma the other day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, grandma, I'm so lucky that I was able to live in a white person's home. Like, live. Had a key. Really? Yeah, my best friend. And I, like, lived there. I lived there for, like, a two. Uh, I, I don't even know how much time it was. I was just always there. And it was beautiful to get to understand, like I said earlier in the conversation, that everything is bad is bad. Everything is good is good. Mm-hmm. There's so many goods in every situation and bads in every situation. And I, I learned a lot from that experience. You know, being in a white person's home, understanding why they think the way they do in the South and Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that they, they may have uh, some um, uh, negative notions of black people, but they like me? And why is that? Like, trying to really understand the nuances of how society works. When you, when you ask yourself that question, what did you, what did you realize? What did you find out? Like, why... And not even just them specifically, but uh-huh. why certain black people may have like these notions of us, but yet to, um, take to you or take to one person in particular. I think what I learned from my personal experience was that everyone gravitates towards people who are like them in some way. And it's not even, I think race is the most obvious thing because clearly like you walk into a room and... Right, and you can see somebody's skin color right away. Right away. But... There were, uh, there were things that like uh, sports. I really like sports. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed music. I really enjoyed the music that they liked. Genuinely. Like I would know the classic rock records the way they know the classic rock records. Mm-hmm. I would like the country records the way they yeah, like the country records. Mm-hmm. I would go to a country concert the way that they would go to a country concert. And I think that I learned that people do business and hang out with people that are ultimately just like them. And because of my skin color... I like to th- I always try to think that my um, I don't look at myself as a oh, what's the word I'm, I'm losing my, my words here, but my skin color as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I look at it as a, as my privilege. Right. I look at my I look at being black as a privilege. I, I always say being black is a privilege because everybody wants to be us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, look when you walk into a room and you're the only black kid in the class. If you fuck up, you're a big fuck up. You just set the pace. You just set the tone for how everybody else sees black. Because what if you were the first black kid that they ever met? Exactly. You just set the tone for every other black person that they're about to meet. Exactly. And I think that's the one thing about being black, too, is it comes with an inherent responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's inherent responsibility. It's a, it's a It's born on you. A responsibility that isn't there for other folks. You know, it's a responsibility to 
you have to know your culture and you have to know the culture of the person sitting across from you. Right. And you, you have to be, you have to be in both worlds to be successful. And, you know, you have to come with culture. You have to be in that meeting and come with culture, but you have to be in that meeting and also come with data and come mm-hmm. with facts. And, you know, that was what I really learned from my experience growing up in high school, you know, was like really studying people and studying the psychology of people and studying like, okay, why do, why do they like me? Because they'll say, they're saying this thing of their political views on the line. With, with the way that they treat me. But they treat me like gold. Right. So why is that? And, and that's what I learned, you know, and I went to an all black college for my freshman year at Virginia State, go Trojans. And when I was there, I learned so much about our culture and realizing that, whoa, black is so different. Mm-hmm. Black is different whether you're in Chicago, you have a different black experience. If you're in L.A., you're having a different black experience. If you're in Atlanta, you're having a different black experience. Mm-hmm. It was the first time learning that black, the black experience is so broad. It was, it was crazy. But I also learned from that situation that a lot of it was just access. There is no when I went to the all white school where I was like in the gifted program and and all that shit. These kids are no smarter than my homies at Virginia State. Right, it's just that the homies at Virginia State weren't coming from a community that gave them access. Access the, that you had in um, Virginia. T- t- greatness is a trained behavior. It's set up. Greatness is not something. It's not like. You it's not like a uh, an apple on a tree you just picked and oh mm-hmm. that's a great apple. No, that great apple was nourished properly. It had the right soil. It got the right sunlight. It got it was a million different factors. It was geographically grown mm-hmm. in an area where all the best apples are, right? Like and think of people the same way. That's the greatest thing I've learned from podcasting and interviewing people mm-hmm. is that these look at Michael Jackson. Right, he was he was groomed from a very young age. Groomed, who he turned into. Look at who his father was. Right. If you know on Silent Giants, so I asked the same question twice: Where are you from, and what do your parents do? Mm-hmm. Those two things determine who you are and who you're going to become. Because it's because it, it starts at home. It starts it at home. Starts at home. And who your parents and why I say that is: If you ask someone, uh, what did Michael Jackson's dad do? His dad. Was in a band. His dad dad was was a touring manager. His dad was all these things. And and his dad spent the majority of his time developing his sons. And look at who his mom is. His mom, by all accounts, everyone's like, she's the sweet, kind, Mm -hmm. generous, nurturing. nurturing. And look who Michael is. What was. Right. Right. So, like, he just became a product. And then think about this. At two years old, three years old, you're competing against your brother who's 10 years old at singing and dancing. So by the time you get to being eight, nine, ten years old, you're already damn near good at it. You you've been balling on a level. It's like being a four year old playing with ten year olds out the gate. Your skill set's gonna match that ten year old, right? And so that's how greatness is. That's how these great people and successful people are produced. You know, like they're nurtured. They're put into a they're born in the right pot with the right soil, with the right sunlight, with the right amount of water, and they just grow. It's funny you mentioned Michael Jackson because when you speak to a lot of people who, who went on to achieve a lot of great things, oftentimes some people will say, oh, my God, like their parents were so hard on them growing up. But then you realize that in order for them to be who they were, their parents had to be that hard on them. 
and you realize that they were built for that pressure that their parents applied to them because without that pressure, they wouldn't be able to become the diamond that they are in their adulthood. In, in some ways, I mean, look, you have some people who uh, are raised in the same household. Mm-hmm. You have three siblings. That one parent could be hard on all three, but one of them, one of them that may take to it the right way. The right. other one might take to it the wrong, the wrong way. way. So it's really, that's where it comes up, uh, a crapshoot or luck of the draw of success. Mm-hmm. It's how that person takes it. And, you know, it's very, in the R. Kelly shit, mm-hmm. talk, there's an interview with his brother and he talks about, you know, he was molested by his sister. Yeah. But how he took it was much differently than how Kelly took it. Right. In the same household, same thing was happening. But two people took it two different ways and absorbed it two different ways. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that's on the responsibility of the parent to understand, like, what, what, what triggers my kid, you know, the right way to get them to go the way they need to go. I don't think it's crazy because growing up, I don't think that a lot of black people, especially from the previous generation, had the luxury of their parents doing that to them. So when now it's time for them to be parents, they didn't really understand that. Explain it a little further. What I mean by that is I feel like um, us as a community, we were set back from, of course, from jump because we came here enslaved and we just weren't able to develop the same family structure that people from other races were. Oh, right. Of course. With that being said, a lot of the things that, a lot of the things that parents in previous generations learned, they learned it on the fly. So they were like this. These aren't things they had. To, they learned on the fly and through trial, trial and error. So it's like like you're saying, you have to be able to understand that certain kids take the take the certain things differently. They didn't have the luxury of being able to really understand their kids because think about the first think about the first real black family that that, that was able like it was because he was finally able to get away from slavery. He was finally able to start a family. Think about how their experience was trying to raise a family and trying to understand what it is or trying oh. to understand the family dynamics, and then them now passing those same bad habits that they probably developed from understanding on the fly. Generation after generation after generation. I, I always make this joke, but it's a very true joke. Uh, a lot of truth in it. I go, being black's a freestyle. <laughs> like, why are we good at freestyling? Because our life is a freestyle. Right. Like, we have to be quick on you our. Got to constantly be able to adjust. <clears throat> like I've, uh, you know, going back to being raised, or not being raised, but I guess being raised in white households. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in white households, and I was able to understand a lot of things. Um, and see a lot of things from a different vantage point, or uh, dating interracially. Ever did it interracially? Not happy. That is an eye-opening experience that I learned a lot from too, because you get to see. Yo, I remember uh, uh, one of the girls I dated. Her credit score was like bananas mm-hmm. at like twenty-four years old. And I was like, like how, how did you even get that? How at did such you an early age? And I mean, old man credit, like and like. Because, you know, your credit is determined by not just paying your bills on time, but the the amount of time that you've had the credit the credit line open. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, her credit score had to be in like 750, 760. And I'm like, how at 24 years old is it even possible? Oh, my dad, when I was 16 years old, he had a credit card. He just put me as a, a user on it. I never had the card. And it developed. Oh, my dad understood credit from, a young, from when he was young. Right. We didn't have that. We didn't have that luxury. The most of us, our 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 names were already put in the credit situations. Nah, that I, were terrible. I had no idea. <laughs> Dude, I didn't know. And this goes back to the conversation about the internet. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand credit until I had to do Google searches. Like I had to teach myself. All right, how do I build my credit up? 
Oh, I gotta, I gotta get a secured card. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got this on time. Then they get another secured card. Now I need multiple lines of credit. You don't even understand. These things aren't taught to you in your household. Mm-hmm. You know, because they don't know. Or also because there's a lot of shame in not knowing. There's a lot of shame in telling your kids. I don't know something. I don't know because something. Because your kids look at you as, as these superheroes, so you don't want to let them down. Exactly. It's a lot of shame in, in that. So, you know, we're learning things on the fly, but I can definitely say that I'm liking the where... I'm sorry, I got the sniffles. I'm liking the where, where our our uh, culture is going, and as a people, we're going. The progress. The, uh, 100%, man. 100%. I, I mean, mean, it's slow, and it's slow and it's steady, but you can tell that... Our generation, going back to the same access thing, being that we do have the access, our generation is starting to learn more things. And, and we know, like we're starting to correct and right a lot of the wrongs that the right. previous generation passed down to us. And look, and look at someone like, you know, I'm also very, and maybe it's a behavior that I've learned from somewhere. I don't know. But I've always had this thing where I don't put garbage in my mind, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it's, it says something that, like, Look who I all my favorite rapper was from when I got into it was Jay. Jay, and I think when you listen to someone like Jay, Jay has been teaching us from time, from from jump. You know what I mean? From the conditions of like where he was in his life, Jay's story is the story of black growth. It's the it's the American dream, quote unquote. It's the quote unquote American dream. Yes, and he I mean literally rose from the gutter, and and now he's a multi almost a billionaire, and he tells you those stories. He tells you those stories from being from the gutter. You know what I'm saying? From being, I didn't have this, I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. To writing some, like, to me, some of the best literary work. Take away from musical work. Some of the best literary work is 444. I mean, actually schooling you on a perspective of talking about credit. Talking about, like, family. Talking about manhood. Probably introducing the topics to people for the first time. For the first time. For the first time, that that's that's a project that's gonna that's gonna be a timeless piece of art. I think that's gonna be a timeless project. It's even beyond art. It's literary. It's literary. It's 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 Keats. It's Wadsworth. It's Langston Hughes. It's it's all that. It's just being done in a sorry in a in a melodic way. Right. It's just doing. It's it's being done so cool in such a finesse cool way. Right, so smooth. Right. That <laughs> you don't even realize way. that. Wow. This is one of the greatest literary writers. Mm-hmm. In American history, I and mean, it's remarkable. Not not even going back to the business aspect, just on the art. And, and him being able to, to to still rap and and create music like that at this age is crazy. It's it's mind blowing, and I mean, as as a culture, I'm very happy with where we're where we're going. I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think that you know, go back to what we're doing right now, like being on your show and mm-hmm. be having my shows, like. The fact that we're supporting each other, like yo, you know what I mean? Like the fact that we have our own individual brands, right? You know, like we own, and that's that's the thing about ownership. It's not about uh, you shouldn't work for someone else, but you should own some. You should you should have something that you should have something that you can fall back on. You should have something to say. Okay, if this job doesn't work out and I'm unemployed right now, this is mine. Right. I don't want people to say, oh, I don't go to college or no. It's just all about like owning something. Owning something. No, listen. Don't get me wrong. I'm, and a lot of my friends already know. I, I always say I'm not too sure if my kids are gonna go away to colleges yet. I'm, I'm not sure. Like if if they want to be a doctor or a lawyer, okay, we, we could do that. But other than that, I, I don't see. Don't get me wrong. Like going away for college is a great experience. You, you learn a lot about yourself because it's the first time you're really alone and 
and on your own and independent. But I just feel like there's other ways to go about it. But see, that's and this is a this is a great conversation, right? Like going back to the issue of privilege, mm-hmm. going back to what you have is way worth more than what a million dollars means or two million dollars means to a person in Richmond. And what I mean by that is you have access. Living in New York City, like I have this thing where I say often, you have to be the God of your life. You can't help that you're black or how tall you are mm-hmm. or your health condition when you were born or mm-hmm. who your parents are, where you went to high school. All those things in your life you can't control. But you can control at 18 years old what your life is going to look like. You have freedom and complete free will. Now, some people have a little bit more leeway mm-hmm. in that period. But at 18, you got it. You know, and I feel like moving to New York was me getting to play God, increasing the probability. So if I never become a, a, a famous podcaster or a rapper mm-hmm. or whatever I want to be in my life, I do know that my kids are set up in a much better position than I than was. you were, right. And that's, that's exactly how I feel as well, too. I know for a fact. Well, that's, that's, that's the goal for each generation, to be able to set your kids up faster or to be able to set your kids up better than they were set up. Right. And so that's the thing is, is being able to... What you have is, a, is worth a million dollars. You know this terrain. You know this, the concrete jungle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the people that you went to school with are now working at some of the top companies probably in the world. Right. Right here in New York. These people you can call up for dinner on some just what's up shit. Right. You know what I mean? Where some other person not from New York has got to finesse that relationship. He's got to actually. He's got to come to New York and start from scratch. Start from scratch. So, so, how was that like for you when you came to New York and started from scratch? What was that like? Fun, but hard as fuck. What was that first? What was that first month like transitioning to coming from a, a much slower pace in Richmond to now coming to a very, the biggest city, the city? What was that like? What was that that first month like having to rock the subway, having to interact with all these rude and, and, and outlandish people on the street? It was fun. It was fun. You know, I, I never had an awkward adjustment socially in New York. I mm-hmm. never got here and didn't feel like I, I wasn't liked or I didn't make, I've always made friends really easy. That was never a problem um, for me, fortunately. Um, it was just a lot of fun. It's crazy because I, like, I, never, I never thought about that. How, how do you make friends in the new city? Dude, it's it's. Crazy man, because you knew nobody when you first came to New York. You didn't have any friends. Or I had like a, like five. Oh, so you knew people, knew people, but like five, and then your five friends. When you're visiting your five friends, that's one thing. When you live in the city with your five friends, it's a whole nother thing, right? Because then now they're living their life. I'm about to say you can't imagine that you're gonna see them as much as you thought you would because they have their own responsibilities and lives to live. Right, exactly. So, I mean, that's a really difficult. Challenge and also too when you move to New York, the way that you understand it is mm-hmm. the way of like watching a documentary of a successful person, like their life. They moved to New York City. They got a job at a coffee shop. At this mm-hmm. coffee shop, they were auditioning, <laughs> and you know one day they went this one audition, and then they got on this big TV show, and their life was never the same. Right? It changed. Right. It changed forever. In that window is four years, right? But they won't tell that four-year story of depression. Or agony, or pain, or being evicted, or mm-hmm. none of these in-between stories. It's just like this happened, this happened, and this happened. And New York is very much like that. Like it's, 
it's hard. Um, once the fun faded away, I'm just like, I'm in a new city and this is tight and <laughs> the women and yo, this is crazy. Right. Once it got down to like, do some work, it gets really difficult. So when you first came to New York, were you, you were still pursuing your rap career? Solely rap. How was, how was that looking? As a as a as a MC and now in the New York scene, what type of people were you connections were you making? What type of spaces and areas were you visiting a lot to get your music out there? Man, honestly, almost nowhere. Man, I didn't really know anything, and that's another thing that I think was misleading. Coming from Richmond, your friends were people that you grew up with. Mm-hmm. People made music with people you had, you had a strong tie to personally. I know their cousin, or their aunt, or their mom. Um, but in New York, it wasn't like that, and that was a big adjustment for me. Like, oh, okay, so I don't know the person that this at, at best at that time. Blog blog culture was huge, mm-hmm. pitches and planes. You know, like I don't know those people. How do I do a music video up here? I don't know any videographers. Who are the producers up here? I don't know any producers. And um, it was this is probably the social media too. That and also the this is right when people left New York City who were musicians. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the people who are artists at this time, the, the big studios were closing. So a lot of people moved to LA. That's when people were moving to Atlanta. That was that was when the, the LA the, the LA migrant and the Atlanta migrant yeah. started. Okay, right. And so then I just felt like a and it didn't happen where I was conscious of it. It just happened. And all of a sudden, three years later, I'm like, dude, there's no one here. <laughs> I went no to one in your industry at least. Right. Nobody's here. Right. And I think that's when um uh Yeah, that was a really tough adjustment. I mean, I just worked a lot of odd jobs, man. I've done more odd jobs than What were some of the odd jobs you were doing when you first got here? Oh God. <laughs> the, the, I, I could just feel the trauma. I was about to say the look on his the look like, that just came on his face was just like yo, I don't even want to it, go there. It's like a bird shot on my shoulder. It's like, oh God. <laughs> like, uh dude, I I worked at a wine store, I was a busboy. I was a bartender. I was a server. I, um, I danced bar mitzvahs. I bagged catnip. I had a job bagging catnip. Catnip. I was a nanny. I was a live-in nanny. A live-in nanny. I was a live-in nanny. How long were you living with that family? For a year in Greenwich, Connecticut. I did that for a year. So would you commute from back and forth from New York and come in Connecticut? I would come in, do shows, come in, like party with my friends on the weekends. Um, but largely, I was there Monday through Friday in Connecticut. Wow. Um, I did that, man. I did. Oh, I did just so many odd jobs. I mean, it's insane. Like one, you know, little one-off things. Someone would pass out flyers in the street for a couple mm-hmm. hundred bucks. Like, so at what point, right? You said there was a point in time where you realized, wow, nobody's here. When that reality slapped you in the face, how did you feel? Did you feel like you wasted your time coming to New York? Did you feel like it was the wrong decision? Or was it more like, okay, there's nobody here in New York. Let me figure out something else. Yeah, I never I never once felt like oh, it was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Because New York is a beautiful place. I've grown so much as a person. And I was like, yo, I definitely got confidence of like, yo, I, I'm in New York and I'm still here. Just being here gave me a lot of confidence. The that, fact that it didn't swallow you up alive. Right. Like, just me being here gave me confidence of, like, all right. Like, if I can live in this joint, mm-hmm. I can really make things work. Because mm-hmm. now I'm comfortable here. Now this is, like, whatever to me. Um, so I think what I started doing then was saying, okay, well, the rap thing isn't working right now. 
maybe I can like I need to meet people. Maybe I can just write for them because I'm writing songs. I'm writing mm-hmm. my own hooks. So then I started like really pushing this writing thing. Mm-hmm. So I started writing songs for a couple of folks and really enjoy it. Like I'm in a uh, session tomorrow. I really enjoy writing songs, and that that's been. Uh, a great way for me to be, stay creative and continue to meet people and people go, yo, yeah, the song you wrote was dope, bro. Mm-hmm. And that was cool. And then, but it wasn't until podcasting. And then podcasting came and that was something where I realized, okay, I don't need other people really for this. Like, I, I, I can be consistent. Um, I don't need a producer. I don't need to, you know, a lot of energy goes into making music. Music, right. A lot of energy. And, and music is a feeling. It's something that you feel. So you got to be in the right mood. You got to, you know, you need other people to, mm-hmm. you know, I need this graphic design work done. I need a video done. I need to get this mixed. I need to get this mastered. I need to do all this. I need PR around this. You need, there's so many parts. You, you, well, you could say the same for podcasting to a certain extent because um, in, order to get, in order to get your name out there, in order to get your name in publications, you would need PR. In order to create like the little graphics, you would need a graphic designer. So, so what about podcasting? Like, made you, or matter, how about this? What made you take the risk of podcasting? Like, how were you introduced to podcasting? Oh, well, how I was introduced to was from a friend. Um, I was working at uh, at a company, and shout out to my boy NC. He's the one who put me on game, and he took me out to dinner. He mm-hmm. was like. Uh, well, I, I I think I asked him for a meeting. I was like, Yo, would you? want to manage me as an artist. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant. He's a really brilliant guy. I need someone that I look up to the way that I look up to Obliv musically mm-hmm. and culturally on a business move. He really taught me how to move in business. He really taught me how to like be professional and stuff like that, which is something that you, you don't think about, but it is really important. Especially, like, if, you want to, especially if you want to be an artist. If you want to own your own things, right? So everybody that's that 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 also feels like okay, I don't want to work a nine to five. I don't want to work under somebody. I want to be an owner. Listen very carefully. Yes, because <laughs> mentorship and professional mentorship is really important because mm-hmm. they teach you how to move in a in a room, how to get people on your side to persuade them to let's let's work on this particular project. Mm-hmm. About the importance of running a team, how to inspire a team. Mm-hmm. NT taught me a lot of that stuff. And he, uh, but he told me, yo, give me two weeks to listen to your music and like, let me think about this. I'm not in the music industry. Mm-hmm. All right, two weeks. He listened to my music, came back. He's like, yo, your music's tight. But he was like, I can't help but think the bigger play is you. And I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, like, I think you are the star. I think music is something that you do. But you walk into a room and you're a star. He was like, you should do it. You should have a podcast because you have a lot of friends. I was like, what's the fuck's a podcast? What the fuck is that? I just want to be, I just want to be an artist. What are you, what are right. you talking about? I'm almost insulted. Like, honestly. I, I can be a star and have music. What do you mean? Right. Like, my vision at the time of what he's saying isn't really processing. He's just like, you should have a podcast, man. Like, you should, uh, like, if you could have a, sh- and I said, what, what is it? Like, an internet radio show? Mm-hmm. He was like, yeah, yeah, it's like in a radio show. You have plenty of friends in the music industry, which I had because I've been building up relationships just by just being the guy around. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, man, or coming to your party, just showing love. Showing love. Um, so I had built a couple of relationships. And he was like, yo, you should invite them to just down and take two microphones and talk and interview them. 
I was like, okay. He's like, what would your show be about? It came so quick. It took like literally one minute. Silent Giants. He was like, oh, you came up with that on the fly? That's a great name. And then right then and there, he's, you're proving his point. He's like, you should create a podcast. What podcast? Oh, I think of a podcast where I can interview people behind the scenes right away. It all, it all clicked there. like... I met automatically what the show was going to be. Mm-hmm. And he had the gear and he would let me come into the office. And on Sundays, I would just do a rotation of, I would have four or five people come through every Sunday. Every Sunday. And I would, have, I would get five interviews done every Sunday. Five interviews done every Sunday. Four interviews. To the point where when we launched, I probably had 50 episodes in the tub already. Just because I was used to that Sunday locking them in routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really how it got started. And podcasting has really changed my life. Uh, how has it changed your life? Um, number one, I think that it's it's taught me a lot about it, it's it's so many layers to it. The first layer has taught me about doing things that aren't about me. Um, podcasting for me is strictly about giving back. Like I don't approach podcasting with any ego. Mm-hmm. It's not like a thing where I'm like, oh man, I want to shit on your show. Oh man, like I'm like I want like I want to be number oh, one. I got the best show. Fuck everybody else's show. Yeah, yeah, it's not like that for me mm-hmm. at all. Like where my competitive side comes out, uh, maybe in business or maybe in music. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's where I'm competitive. I'm definitely competitive when it comes to music and and bars and freestyling and rapping. Very competitive with that. But when it comes to podcasting, I'm so not competitive, and it truly is nice to be about other people and care about other people. And want to tell their story and um, help people. You know, mm-hmm. from now, what's allowed me to do is that every person that I've interviewed, I've built kind of a personal relationship with. And so I might be able to say, hey, yo, you know what? You can, you guys should work on a particular project together. I think it would work really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and able to just help other people away from just interviewing them. You know, and that's been a humongous blessing. And I also walk away happier with my work um, because there is no pressure. Like the, I could just be a fan and just be a fan of that person sitting across from me and getting their story. And and there's nobody telling you to tweak this or tweak that. You're just, you're just going with the flow. You're just doing what you want to do. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mind people telling, you know, I don't mind being told what to do as far as, as long as the art, as long as it's beneficial to the art. Mm-hmm. I'm not a control freak in that particular way. Even with my own music, I'm always open to take, other people's opinions and I love collaborating and getting other feedback but this allows me to just help people with I have no stakes in it besides I want to see that person's story told you know and I want to be the person to get the best story from them mm-hmm. you know I want to, I want there to be yo I just have to go talk to Corey you know and build those platforms for people to be heard. And I think that's what, when you really look at both shows, OPP and uh, Silent, Silent Giants, Giants, they're both platforms for other people. To come share their stories. Right. They're, it's not, it's really solely just about like, yo, I want to make your show fucking dope. Like, I want to get... So how was how was other people's podcast born? Because you, you, I assume Silent Giants was created prior to OPP, OPP right? Yeah, Silent Giants came first. And, ah... Uh, Dude, you know what? I was thinking, man, I just can't take on two shows. I can't take on two shows. That's just so much. Two shows is a lot. But I will say this. The idea could not, I could not shake it off. And I was actually inspired by a podcast called The Turnaround by Jesse Thorne, who had a privilege of interviewing OPP. 
and uh, I'll look into that. The turnaround's amazing. It's a podcast where Jesse interviews his favorite his favorite interviewers. Mm. And I was in I was on vacation in Virginia in the mountains and was listening to it. And I was like, oh, this is a really cool concept. I like this. And I was like, imagine if this could be done for like other podcasters. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because he only interviewed interviewers. There weren't, some were podcasters, but there were other, other were TV like, people. Like report, yeah, yeah, reporters, reporters. And TV journalists, things of that nature. And I was like, oh, well, this would be great. I would love to interview other podcasters. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe, maybe my show would be the show they want to come and talk on. And I could not shake the idea off me. It was just like, ah, it's like, it was like that itch you, itch you can't scratch almost. Yeah. And so I started doing that, man. And that's been a humongous honor. Uh, getting to meet people who are, you know, creatives in the space uh, and doing really amazing things. And that's been a huge honor, too. So, yeah. And that, that's also allowed me to realize a- along the journey of podcasting, too, mm-hmm. is that whatever your show is about I wasn't prepared for people perceiving me as like an expert maybe in the field. The field of podcasting you mean or any So OPP of- maybe I was a little bit more aware of it with OPP, but Devil for Silent Giants, people it built I be I was able to build a brand not only as a journalist but as a creative. Mm-hmm. As people who under like I'm I'm interviewing people who are famous for working on like engineering Michael Jackson records or you know, coming up with the logo for Burger King or Dunkin' Donuts or or the Knicks, or the Knicks right? Like, um, and so I'm able to. I'm learning as my listeners are learning about the creative process. I'm becoming an expert from interviewing and learning from experts, um, and that's really helped me creatively mm-hmm. to not just now when I'm going to come out. I'm going to come out with some music at some point in my career. I'm going to be a better rapper because of that. Because now, I've not only have I built relationships with, you know, the top graphic design artists. Right. I've right. built those relationships. Uh, I've also learned, like, how the industry works. So it kind of, it kind of, not forces you, but it, it helps you to, like, to tweak your creative process a little bit. Being that you, you have, um, you're exposed to all these other creative processes. 100%. So it's not even about being number one. Right to me, this is college. Mm-hmm. Like, what more could you ask for? This is my college experience. It's being able to sit down with people that I really respect, who I really admire, who have done things in their life that we can only dream of achieving, and sitting down with them and learning. Just learning directly from them, not from somebody who claims to know the information, not somebody who studied the information and is not regurgitating back to you, but learning directly from industry professionals. Right. You know, and I say this too with, with podcasting, you know, think of your podcast like a tattoo. Mm-hmm. It's interesting analogy. What do you mean by that? Like, you're going to have whatever you're, you talk about mm-hmm. and the topic of your show is what people are going to perceive you as an expert as. So if you have a... Uh, a podcast about, you know, Japanese sushi and you're interviewing Japanese sushi chefs, they're going to invite you to come speak on a Netflix special about Japanese sushi. About Japanese sushi. They're not going to ask you to speak about on Jalen and Jacoby. <laughs> right. Even though, sports. Even, even though you like Jalen and Jacoby. Right. Like, so whatever you t- tend to make your show around, mm-hmm. that's what people are going to only call you for. It's your tattoo. You know, so are, you, are you comfortable with this 
for the next five years, ten years, or a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, like, are you comfortable? People going to call you to be only for your sports knowledge? Are you cool with that? You know, and I think a lot of times people aren't thinking about their their podcast in that way. Mm-hmm. It's more of like I I enjoy it, or you know, I mean, I might be, I'm going to meet people or talk to people. But it's a little deeper. It's than a little that. bit more intricate than that. It's a little bit more intricate than that. Like you're building a brand. Like you want people to, you know. Now when I go in for a job interview, I don't even give them a resume. I just show you show them your work. Yeah, I'm like oh well, you can listen to like this is what I do. Like I produce these shows. I created these shows. I host these shows. Mm-hmm. Check it out. You know, and uh, look at your podcast as a tattoo. I like I like that, and, and, and it's got me thinking now. It's got me thinking about the direction that I want to take this particular show and how I want to brand it going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, the future of podcasting is so big. And, you know, I, I want people to walk away knowing two things about me. I love podcasting. I love people. And I love creating. And I think Silent Giants and OPP do that for me and my personal brand. It allows me to show the world these are my interests. Mm-hmm. And also, too, it's the, the, the element of proxy. You know, if you're interviewing another interviewer, people perceive you as an interviewer. Right. Right? Like, I, if I'm interviewing the top podcasters, you know, it's allowed me to really showcase, hey, I can compete with these guys. I can do the same exact thing these guys are doing. Right. Like, mm-hmm. these are my friends. It, now, it, it and puts now, you in the, in the space of them. And not only that, once again, I never want to be in a position where I love OPP and that show in particular is because I don't have to poo-poo on anyone else's show. It's you can only, encourage and lift them up. It's only to boost and make you the number one podcaster that you can be. To get, bring awareness to your show. And that is like the best feeling ever to walk away being like, I don't have to, I have no competition. My only competition is me me Mm -hmm. and pushing myself to make your shows bigger. That's my only competition. And I I go to bed way easier and way happier with that. Maybe happier than any other career choice I've ever made. Like this one. It's great to hear, and I'm, and I'm glad that you're enjoying it because you seem to some you seem to be somebody that genuinely enjoys your craft and genuinely enjoys what you're doing. So, can you tell the people where they can find OPP, where they can find Silent Johns, and where they can follow you? Yeah, so um, type uh, on Apple or Spotify. Just type in my name, Corey Cambridge, C O R E Y, and Cambridge like Cambridge University, and you're gonna see both my shows pop up uh, automatically. And then you can follow me on Instagram at, at Corey Cambridge. Uh, as well to keep up with what I'm doing and I'm sorry I got the sniffles I'm just getting over this cold <laughs> forgive still, me still still adjusting to the New York to the New York weather change yeah man it's, it's killing me <laughs> Corey it was, it, was, it was fun having you I really enjoyed this conversation no man I, I really appreciate you having me on the show it's, it's such an honor to be on your platform and uh, I'm also very happy to see that we got young brothers out here like yourself who are pursuing their dream, you know what I mean? And pers- and aggressive with it. And when you hit me up, I just had to say yes. And I'm just so happy and honored to be on your show, man. Definitely, man. I definitely appreciate it, Corey. My guy. You've been listening to the King Belly Podcast. You can follow the King Belly Pod on Instagram and Facebook. 
you can subscribe to the King Belly Podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Your support is greatly appreciated.